Welcome to Word with Dr. Michael David Clay. Uh, we have been conducting a an, that's probably proper, more proper than a, might be a, a, no, it's an, an extensive study of substance-related and addictive disorders according to the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, 5th edition. And uh, as much as we've covered anything, and there's a lot that could be covered, there's many psychoactive substances that uh, would fall under this general category of behavioral health problem. Uh, we would call them, again, disorders, as the name calls them, the actual title of the category uh, calls them, substance-related and addictive disorders. We've tried to, though, choose to focus upon those <laughs> that seem to be most significant. How did we determine that? <laughs> we looked at a study that was conducted in 2017, uh, which basically was a survey uh, of drug use and health concerns uh, that came to the conclusion in a very general and broad sort of way, 19.7 million adults 12 years or older in 2017 had a substance-related and addictive problem. And with that, that 30% of these problems, based on the survey, were reported to have begun before the age of 18, and with that, made those individuals seven times more likely to fall into the category then, use of a substance before the age of 18. 30% of the respondents that were surveyed had used one of the substances, illicit substances, uh, that uh, was in the survey. And if you had, you were seven times more likely to then have a substance-related <laughs> addictive disorder. They determined a correlation. Uh, with that, of those who did have a diagnosable substance-related and addictive disorder, particularly along the lines of uh, not only abuse but dependence, 85% would relapse within the first year. Now, this is important to acknowledge. It's been important throughout our studies. Our study and a study and series of studies uh, over these podcasts uh, that, again, are pertaining to substance-related and addictive disorders according to the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. It's been significant all along, just in and of itself. That's an important, probably, fact to note. Speaks to much to uh, prevention. Do it soon, do it early, strong messaging, uh, and even if we're only dealing with 30% of the population, that's a significant number if you really factor in or measure it out. Actually, how many people, <laughs> that persons that represents, and then with that, multiply that by whatever the average number of individuals would be at a family, and you have then the potential to multiply that by four or five times, depending on the number of folks in the family that are then influenced their lives are impacted 
by somebody who does develop a substance-related and addictive disorder. It's a lot of people. But now, at this point in our study, studies, uh, we are going to take a look at a substance that is probably as much politically charged as seems to be, at least the uh, interpretation of the data seems to be, as everything else appears to be in our society at this particular moment. And for those of you who may be listening to this podcast, sometime in the future, it'd be circa 2020. <laughs> now, what that means is that there are, there are data, there is data, there are studies, there would be research that's been conducted, facts, science. <laughs> These would be empirically sound studies. Replicated, valid, yes, and replicated, reliable, that presents data sufficient to suggest as of 2013 when the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, 5th edition, was originally initially printed, and there's not been one since, so it is the current edition, as well as the information that I've just supplied to you, only one of many studies that have determined that in the category of substance-related and addictive disorders, is cannabis. <laughs> now, all of a sudden, you may be appreciating why I've taken the energy and the effort that I have up to this point in our discussion today, on today's podcast, to introduce the subject matter for today's podcast. We are going to discuss cannabis also identifiably so as marijuana, which formerly so was pretty restricted to certain, I guess, species, <laughs> not the right word, uh, category of plants, but has in the last 30, 40 years been refined. There's been horticulture, I suppose you could call it, science applied to horticultural, science applied to the cultivation of, the modification of, the um, uh, change, the altering of what was pretty much maybe in the 70s, 60s, 50s, 40s, back. Pretty natural. You could only get so much of the psychoactive ingredient. Now we've created, as we can do with agriculture and horticulture, and I'm not, as you can tell, I don't know much about plants in that sort of way, what you would indeed call that. But they can do much with genetic engineering. And they can create plants, cannabis, 
the source, the plants that are the source of the psychoactive substance, which is THC, cannabinoids, the cannabis plant. And cannabinoids now, we know, is different than THC. That's how far we've gotten. We can separate those two in, uh, primary, I guess, ingredients, <laughs> uh, essential elements. Uh, we can take the cannabinoids out of the THC and uh, it results in a product that is not psychoactive, that does not appear to be addictive, at least at this point, and so far has remained legal. You're not going to get arrested for possession of it regardless of where you live. I guess it would then be amounts and intentions. And I mean, there's all sorts of things. I'm not a, a lawyer either, so I don't know all the legal aspects of possession. I do know that you are not supposed to drive intoxicated. <laughs> that will get you a DUI. That's still illegal. But outside of that, things change so fast and quickly, I have not been able to keep up with it. Some of you who are listening to me right now, though, know it like the back, as they used to say, the back of your hand, because it's important to you. And that's okay, too. This would not be intention, the podcast, or, or our discussion would not be intention to uh, cast any dispersion upon one's either convictions, personal beliefs, even political beliefs about the utility of cannabis. Uh, whether it would be not only useful, but its safety. That's not the intention of this discussion. Uh, it's not a discussion that's intentioned to be political. It's not even a discussion that's intentioned to be too persuasive when it comes to law. That's not my intention. And certainly I do not want to speak to too much the cultural dimensions of it, except as it would pertain to then some sort of in a psychological counseling way, substance-related and addictive disorders. But I would like to say this. There's a lot of facts out there and a lot of interpretations that are not based on facts. And again, if they're just personal opinions and beliefs, everybody's entitled to one. I'm entitled to one. I have one. I'm trying very hard. I will maintain objectivity in this discussion. I will not share necessarily my personal views, convictions about the use of cannabis. But if we stick to the facts, which again, that's what the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual has done. It does not even offer again theory as to what causes the disorders, it just attempts to describe or define the disorders. And it has determined that cannabis use is worthy of inclusion in the category of disorder known as substance-related and addictive disorders. When it comes to before the age of 18, there is fact, and <laughs> though I'm trying to be objective, it does not mean I'm a theoretical, uh, some interpretation of fact as applied to, again, before the age of 18, children and adolescents that suggests 
use of cannabis before the age of 18 can be very harmful or detrimental to the development of the individual cognitively as well as socially, psychologically as well as psychosocially, as a person, and then as that person would hold relationship to not only others, but in a more, again, broader or generalized way, the society, the community in which they live. And if for no other reason, I'll cut to the chase, then the use of cannabis affects the body as all psychoactive substances would do in biochemical terms, but also interferes with one's experience or utilization of experiences to learn. First, how to learn, and then secondly, to categorize, or I should say catalog, which really has some categorization in it, but to catalog then that knowledge so as then it could be applied in future circumstances or situations. Psychology is basically divided into two primary influences. There is the physiological, which includes the genetic and the biological, and then there's the psychosocial, nature versus nurture. Anyone who's taken an introductory psychology class or read anything, studied anything that has to do with basic psychology is probably well aware. Nature is the physical. Nature would be the brain, organic, central nervous system, the sympathetic, parasympathetic nervous system. And with that, the idea that everything that happens humanly, which would then mean that is either thought or done or felt by a human being has a chemical basis to it. But more than that, there is also then interpretation, which does move us to more the psychosocial or the social dimension. We're social creatures. We are socialized. We are designed for relationships. We are indoctrinated into a series of beliefs, philosophies, paradigms, ideologies. And again, I think we've made it clear over this series of discussions on substance-related and addictive disorders that one must develop individually actualizing the physiological or the innate physical capacity or capability as well as then fit in, relate to, is influenced by the psychosocial, those around them. It's not only me or you, but it's you or me around you that otherwise contributes. And what I think we've found, studies will show, has shown, continue to show, is that 
they're somewhat equal. Now, if you physically can't do it, then there's no matter of what external influence is going to be applied. There's going to be a ceiling, a baseline of expectations, particularly if whatever, we'll call them disability, whatever is interfering with your ability to finish the normal developmental course of either emotional operations or psychological operations, you're going to be limited probably then by that in terms of either taking in social experiences or by interacting with others socially. And I should say this, though it may not even be people, we should broaden it a bit more to include environmental influences and factors. That, again, is what brings us back to the concern about the use of cannabis, particularly THC, during early childhood, childhood, adolescent years, when all of this development, all these milestones, whether it is based on Piaget's cognitive development or Erickson's psychosocial development or whatever derivative theory that's come along that's built onto or added to that, that is the current theory of choice, yours, if you tend to do what I do for a living, or maybe you don't know it in such psychological terms or as far as who to attribute the theory to, you know, you came up with your own, so you could just call it yours, but it's got to be, must be empirically validated. Or as we discussed in the last podcast, it's a lie. I can think anything, but experience either proves it to be true or not. I can hold out until the very last moment. I can hold out until the day that my physical body leaves this world or die, die in that way. Exit, return to dirt. It probably doesn't leave the physical world. It's just the form. My human form ceases to exist. Holding hope that somehow all the empirical evidence is wrong. (laughs) Maybe it is. But for me, it wasn't. And my whole life has been then, could be said, to spent to try to prove reality not. <laughs> and that makes no sense because usually the things that certainly are most important to us, that are most considered most adaptive, that would speak to either longevity or quality of life, are important enough to get right or you get sick along the way. That, too, is fundamentally part of the the paradigm, I think, universal paradigm of all psychology. That's why we call them disorders. In a moment, even extend that could be for a significant period of time. You might get away with it, but in the end, you can look back when it's all said and done, and if you interpret the data properly, if you look at it longitudinally over time, If you can factor out errors of measurement, whether it's the person who's doing the studying or some other factor or variable that interferes, that might change the reality because, again, the potential exists that we can live in bubbles. We can live in artificial sort of situations. Seems real, but it's really not. But in the end, you can look back and say, wait a minute. I was wrong. Hopefully, 
But if we've established, if we've established that knowledge, that paradigm, if that hypothesis or that theory has been tested over a period of time and continues to come to the same conclusions, and yours happens to differ from the majority of either the studies or even your own personal one, you don't get what you always think you should, then your paradigm needs modification. Again, I'm not going to say it's all wrong, but the hypothetical deductive model would say, uh, maybe you should take another look at that. Maybe you should get some additional input. Maybe you should seek further information, not just the studies that seem to support what you want to believe. <laughs> That's biased. But really, look at them all, not to find what you're looking for, but to find what's really there. And overwhelmingly, we know, we're beginning to see quite clearly that the use of cannabis and THC before the age of 18 has an impact on emotional and cognitive development. The two primary operational systems you will use a child and adolescent who turns an adult uses throughout their life to live a high quality quantity life, the most adaptive life that's available. If for whatever reason we don't want to admit that, even if it seems to help in an immediate sense, we have to override the impulse for the quick fix, the immediate sort of relief, so that we don't sacrifice what hopefully will be the majority of one's life. Now, you could argue when you're 65 or 70, who cares? And maybe that's a good argument. You've only got, what, 15 maybe years? That's generous. Left. But when you're 12 and 13, why would you want to set someone up for difficulties, emotional, psychological, cognitive, psychological, will include the behaviors that, that ensue out of thoughts, or even in a reactive sort of way, could come out of the physiology, the emotional. Why would you want to sentence them to trouble? If you know, statistically speaking, 30% of those individuals who begin illicit substance use before the age of 18 are seven times more likely to have, according to the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, substance-related and addictive disorders as an adult. Now, now, that just addresses that particular category, too. We've talked about concurrent or concomitant dual, as we call it, D-U-A-L, diagnoses. If you're not coping well, you're going to tax other systems. If you've got a genetic predisposition to depression and you're not coping well, you're going to probably have with that not only higher risk of substance use, or by using a substance you're going to do that, but you're at the same time going to probably facilitate, potentiate one's having depression. 
And certain substances, again, leave you more depressed. It's just the way they work. We've had, again, prior podcasts, quite extensive discussions on just that. You're messing up a very intricately balanced system called the homeostatic response. It's autoimmune function. It's core health. When you take a foreign substance, you are compromising that. You say, well, it's already compromised because I'm already feeling this way. Well, maybe so, but be very careful. The more you add to it, the more you're going to throw it out of balance. And usually the medical model has some difficulties with that, typically. But if you're out there on your own, (laughs) oh, well, this looks good, or somebody said that about that, or even if you're one of those individuals I mentioned earlier that just loves to study and research whatever drug of choice that you would want to justify or or, uh, validate for yourself or believe is true, what do you know, though, that a scientist somebody who is really educated in this might know about it. And I don't profess to be that person, so you can ask me those questions and you can attack me on that level and I will concede that point, but I do know generally enough to know you don't. Not unless you went to school or you are one of the small percentage of individuals who are a genius and did not need to go to school to learn all the details. And with that, you'd have to have the capital to be able to have the instruments to measure it at that level, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You get the point. So when we speak of then cannabis use disorders, I'm going to read you the diagnostic criterion as we'll go over that, even as we have in all the other substances we've uh, studied, opiates, nicotine, cocaine, stimulants. But I just want you to keep in mind, it may indeed be that your particular personal beliefs about cannabis or the use of cannabis as an adult, especially if you did not use it much as a child or an adolescent, and see it as a recreational drug that causes no problems for you as an adult, however, may be distorted by the fact that you're an adult and you don't know enough about the developmental course psychologically, physiologically, to understand it is bad for an adolescent and a child. Most physicians, the FDA, uh, discourages the use of psychoactive or psychotropic, I should say, which has a psychoactive dimension, but these are medications that are pharmaceutically um, researched, developed to treat emotional and behavioral problems, it's discouraged for children. Many of them aren't approved for children and adolescents. Why? Because there's a common sense dimension to this. The addition of any substance unnecessarily, and even if it's necessary, but it can have an impact that will then cause more difficulties, not only immediately in the terms of development, hitting those milestones, actualization of emotional, psychological, cognitive, and behavioral sort of operations, 
but then would set the person up long-term throughout their life. They never actualize the system. They're arrested in their development, and then psychologically and depending on the substance, they could be physiologically, due to tolerance and withdrawal, locked into a pattern of illicit substance use. And if it is legal, as with prescription medications, why would we want to do that either if there was a better course of action, even if it required a bit more effort or work? And of course, the answer seems obvious to me. We wouldn't. Wouldn't want that to happen that way. We'd want to. We would. We'd want to invest the time and the energy in that which is really why prevention is always going to be the best model, but it's not necessarily, well, just don't do it. You can say that, but unless you understand what's going on, unless you're really educated in psychological sort of dimensions, unless you understand childhood development, uh, unless you would be then with that responsible as a parent to do the best you could, not based on what you had growing up, well, it worked for me, but what you know to be true. And even then, make sure that whoever you're getting your information from, whatever study, whatever interpretation, whatever conclusion, whatever report, whatever theory is being espoused, that it's not biased, prejudiced by subjectivity, that they don't have themselves an angle, an axe to grind, as they used to say, a political persuasion, a personal agenda. Because if they do, and they're not confessing that or admitting that to you, you could buy it as not only factual, but the interpretation as objective, and it may be wrong. Something is wrong because we're at a point where we're having difficulties, which we call disorders, with individuals who use cannabis. And it's not changed in seven years. You could say, well, it's seven years old. No, or you could say, well, it's just because nobody likes it. No, there's a factual basis to it. Let that be my red flag warning to all parents or anyone who's involved with a child or a teenager It is not acceptable to responsibly allow any child, any teenager that you have some input into their lives to use cannabis, at least minimally so, without a warning. Now, if you're not inclined to stop them, you feel like you have no ability to, you don't feel like the judicial system, the court system, when it comes to adolescence, status offense, whatever, is sufficient to be able to assist you and you've lost control of your adolescence, adolescent or child, okay, but at least you need to warn them. Now, if you do have that influence still, then you need to stop them. There is no justified reason before 18 that somebody needs to be on pot, and especially if they've shown some evidence of a disorder, It could be just abuse, basically is what I'm saying. Just using it as abuse. Anything beyond that, though, especially in terms of dependence, needs to stop. And if you have that influence, then get the help you need. 
Seek out the advice. Reach out to me. Reach out to a local provider. All those things I keep saying in in previous podcasts, over the course of all of these podcasts. This is for informational purposes. You need to speak to uh, undergo an evaluation in a personalized, individualized way with someone who has the license and the credential to do such. This does not substitute for it, but it does cause you call your awareness to, cause you to have awareness of a problem. It's up to you to seek help. If you are in denial, personal or otherwise, you are then codependent. And you are then contributing to, I won't say the delinquency of a minor, but it's the equivalent of that. You're harming your child. You're harming your adolescent. So we're going to take a look then (laughs) at the diagnostic criteria. Cannabis-related disorders, a problematic pattern of cannabis use leading to clinically significant impairment or distress as manifested by at least two of the following occurring within a 12-month period. And this, again, should be very familiar. The wonderful thing about the DSM is it's uniform. One, cannabis is often taken in larger amounts or over a longer period than was intended. Two, there is a persistent desire or unsuccessful efforts to cut down or control cannabis use. Three, a great deal of time is spent in activities necessary to obtain cannabis use cannabis, or recover from its effects. Four, craving or a strong desire or urge to use cannabis exists. Five, recurrent cannabis use resulting in a failure to fulfill major role obligations at work, school, or home. Six, continued use despite having persistent or recurrent social or interpersonal problems caused or exacerbated by the effects of cannabis. Seven, important social, occupational, or recreational activities are given up or reduced because of cannabis use. Eight, recurrent cannabis use in situations in which it is physically hazardous. Nine, cannabis use is continued despite knowledge of having a persistent or recurrent physical or psychological problem that is likely to have been caused or exacerbated by cannabis. Ten, tolerance as defined, and I underscore either, emphasize either of the following. A need for markedly increased amounts of cannabis to achieve intoxication or desired effect. Markedly diminished effect with continued use of the same amount of cannabis. What that means is implicitly tolerance. 
Cannabis is addictive. The THC, that is, in cannabis is addictive. Tolerance is established. You will go through some element of withdrawal if you stop using. And what is withdrawal? Number 11, withdrawal as manifested by either, again, underscore either of the following. The characteristic withdrawal syndrome for cannabis and cannabis is taken to relieve or avoid withdrawal symptoms. Now, again, we'll look at that here in a moment, what that withdrawal is, but I did want to say this before we go there. It can be in early remission after full criteria for cannabis use disorder were previously met. None of the criteria for cannabis use disorder have been met for at least three months, but less than 12 months. It can be in sustained remission after full criteria for cannabis use disorder were previously met. None of the criteria for cannabis use disorder have been met at any time during a period of 12 months or longer. And it can be so if only because one is in a controlled environment. This additional specifier is used if the individual is in an environment where access to cannabis is restricted. We also need to code the severity where mild would be the presence of two or three symptoms, moderate would be the presence of four or five symptoms, and severe would be the presence of six of these 11 symptoms, at least. Six of the 11, could be more. And once again, if we are asked to describe whether what, what place or point in remission, it means the implicit meaning would be that once diagnosed as having a substance-related and addictive disorder, cannabis use disorder, you always are going to be vulnerable to having a cannabis use disorder. And really, the disorder never remits. It is a disease. But at the same time, whether you are actively using or not speaks to whether or not there may be need for intervention or some sort of assistance along the way. And again, that should make all the sense in the world, right? I ask you that because you're hanging with me in the conversation. It should because the idea would be if you're using, then you go back to the same place you were when you stopped, which is with the cannabis use disorder. I don't know that we've said it quite this way in regards to any of the other substances, but it can be said. Regardless of the substance, if you're using, you're back to being an addict, period, and usually right where you left off. If you stop, you're still an addict, but you're no longer practicing your addiction, which means you're no longer then practicing all that goes along with it to make one sick or disordered. You've learned new coping mechanisms. <laughs> How do you know that? Because you're not using the illicit substance. Some are better than others. Some are more personal. Some are more dependent upon others around you. Hopefully it's not because of a controlled environment where someone just tells you and makes you stop. But regardless, 
you're doing better than you were when you were using. And though an addict, now you are, as they say, in recovery. So what does cannabis withdrawal then really look like? Cessation of cannabis use that has been heavy and prolonged, and this is the example they give, usually daily or almost daily use over a period of at least a few months. (laughs) Who uses cannabis daily? At least daily over a few months. It's not a mic drop. (laughs) You know who you are. Three or more of the following signs and symptoms develop when approximately one week after having used daily for approximately, or at least a few months. You get irritable, angry, aggressive, number one. Nervousness or anxiety, number two. Number three, sleep difficulty, insomnia, disturbing dreams, Four, decreased appetite or weight loss. Five, restlessness. Six, depressed mood. And seven, at least one of the following physical symptoms causing significant discomfort. Abdominal pain, shakiness tremors, sweating, fever, chills, or headache. The signs or symptoms cause clinically significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning, and they're not attributable to another medical condition or better explained by another mental disorder. Cannabis, THC, is a psychoactive substance. And you can develop a physical tolerance to it, your body does, and you will go through withdrawal. Again, how bad, how significant, how distressing, it's probably personalized. I don't know that many would say it's as bad as, again, opiates, which many say, would be one of the worst. (laughs) But for you, it might be. But regardless, you have to endure the withdrawal so that that in and of itself is eliminated as the most significant trigger to relapse. And because there is the element of craving, it too, as with opiates, seems to suggest the body takes some time to readjust not just the first 48, 72 hours, approximately one week for cannabis, it may take a year. Again, the study that I cited at the beginning of today's podcast says 85% relapse within the first year. That is huge. That means that your risk of relapse is 85%, your risk of, or your um, likelihood, not risk, your likelihood of success is down to 15%. You need help. That's why people, again, seek psychological counseling. 
That's why one should reach out. Not me, then somebody, again, in your community, a licensed social worker, independently licensed clinical social worker, a licensed professional clinical counselor, a licensed psychologist, a licensed psychiatrist, all of those individuals. Some certifications for those that are not independently licensed can help, but I'd seek the independently licensed, which I am, all those are that I mentioned. First, get a good diagnosis, get a good treatment plan in place, get the help that you need. But this idea, though, of withdrawal and the notion that one would have to be concerned about that destroys a lot of the myths. People have taken, again, facts and data and distorted them. They've used them for political purposes and with that, personal agendas. We just want to stay with the facts. We want to look at those. We want to see the situations for what they are. It's empirical. (laughs) It's, again, part of that empiricism, the experience part. So we can make good decisions, not only for ourselves, but, again, as with parents or for those of you who have someone who may be using cannabis or misusing cannabis, (laughs) in a uh, disordered sort of way, you want to help them. Again, that's what these podcasts are for, is to give you the information necessary to make good decisions. What I would like to do then is on our next podcast, again, look at the American Society of Addiction Medicine, the matrix, treatment matrix, And take a look at what available treatment options, once the diagnosis is made, when the individual who sets up or establishes the diagnosis then sets up a treatment plan, what would it look like? What are the best resources? What does it entail? So that's what we're going to do in the next podcast. Spending just a few more moments before we end today's podcast, though, I would like to say this. I started our program by acknowledging that 40, 50 years ago, THC, as far as potency, was pretty much limited to backyard sort of horticulturalists. Yes, I'm sure that there were some that could get some pretty good stuff, as they used to say, strong in the influence, the psychoactive influence. Uh, whose THC content was, again, comparative to the norm, quite powerful stuff. However, it is such today that not only does one have to go to, again, the plant to get cannabis and, as traditionally has been, smoke it, you could... You could eat it or bake it into goods. But now, as with nicotine, you can vape it. And even as we're speaking about the particular concerns of cannabis, we don't look at them in the same light that we do necessarily cigarettes when it comes to smoking, as they say, a joint. There's also byproducts 
from smoking cannabis. Maybe not as harmful or severe. We don't know. Uh, the studies, the research, it's, it's comparative to tobacco and the uh, use of cigarettes. We've not made such the big deal about cannabis that we probably should and hopefully will get into. And what deal we have made about it has already established there are byproducts from the smoking of cannabis that are bad for one. Nonetheless, what we do know is vaping, whether you again look at it with nicotine or any substance, has the same perils we've discussed in previous podcasts when we talked about nicotine. Vaping also allows concentrations of these more laboratory sort of designed product, THC product, to be more concentrated, more potent, and more powerful. And all that means is on a biochemical level, physical level, it increases the chances of tolerance. Why? How do I know that? It's in the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. Studies, research has established that tolerance can to cannabis, to THC in cannabis, can occur, does occur. And with that, there are withdrawal effects. There is also this thing called a dab, which is very potent. And comparative to the others, again, I'm not a specialist in manufacturing of drugs. I hear a lot conversing with my patients who use drugs, some of which I believe, some of which I know is not true, some of which comes from credible sources, folks who have spent their whole life studying their drug of choice, uh, passionate about it, passionately so, and some of those who really don't care as long as it got them high. So I have to filter that out. But what I'm really trying to capture is we're not talking about THC that somewhere 50 or 60 years ago was on the market, whether it was illegal or not. Or if you're an adult or even maybe older, <laughs> post uh, sort of adult into your more aged years, older adult, uh, you're just not the same sort of product that you had experiences with when you were a teenager or when you were a young adult. There is also legitimately so cannabinoids that comes from cannabis that has incredible promise for being not only beneficial, there's a psychoactive dimension, but does not seem to suggest tolerance or withdrawal. It is not a controlled substance, is not illegal. I'd like to spend at least one podcast, again, won't be the next one, but maybe the one after, speaking about cannabinoids and their anecdotally, their benefit, at least my personal experience with folks who use them, and then also just referring you to the research that's available. Once again, I want to thank you for joining us today on Word with Dr. Michael David Clay. I post my email address. You're always welcome to get a hold of me. I'd love to hear from you. And should you not reach out to me via email, then at least, <laughs> please, Try to join us again on our next podcast of Word with Dr. Michael David Clay. Thanks.